There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the PR Weekly, the podcast that unpacks PR industry news, analysis and gossip in one weekly listen. I'm Arvin Hickman, news editor of PR Week. And I'm John Harrington, PR Week UK editor. Today we're going to take a look at the challenges creatives and clients face in getting messaging right as the economy opens up. And a bit later on in the program, we will be joined by the PRCA's Francis Ingham and Cicero's Louise Stewart for their take on the David Cameron lobbying scandal and what the industry needs to do next. Greensill uh, Lex had been in contact with Federation of Small Businesses because he was dealing with small business loans and decided not to have anything to do with, with him. Let's go straight into the news bulletins this week. The lobbying self-regulator, the Public Affairs Board, has released a six-point plan to improve transparency following a scandal involving David Cameron. Corn has hired Taylor Herring to build on its sustainable food message. A&M Comms has acquired drinks PR specialist LDR Creative. Next15 has reported an adjusted pre-tax profit rise of 22% in its latest annual results, which, given the current circumstances, is pretty good. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest industry news, please visit prweek.com forward slash UK. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into the creative challenge that faces brands as the economy opens up. Now, in recent weeks, I've been speaking to a lot of creative directors from the likes of Mischief, Taylor Herring, The Romans, Cow, and others about the major challenges creatives face as the economy opens up. I mean, almost all of them report a sharp rise in comeback briefs where brands are really desperate to sing and dance about their products and the services heading in summer. But John, 
some are describing it as an avalanche of activity, and many are hoping this summer will be like the Roaring Twenties again, full of social connection, outdoor pop-ups, and so on. However, it's not really as simple as that. It's not really about who shouts the loudest. We are still in a pandemic, and there is still a lot of caution and sensitivity around messaging and tone. Now, John, I'm sure you've had a chance to, to read the feature uh, where, where I um, spoke to nine different creative directors. What, what's, what's your take on creativity, creativity heading into summer? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's a fascinating feature. I'd, I'd recommend everyone everyone reading that. So many different perspectives on on it. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's been a lot of debate about tone, hasn't there? About yeah. sort of whether and how uh, to use humour, um, how to avoid how to avoid every message basically being the same. We've missed you. We're back by our stuff. Um, I mean, you remember kind of last year when when lockdown first happened, there was a lot of samey messaging of, you know, we're on your side through the good times and the bad and all of that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but there's also uh, a kind of a need to stand out from the crowd. But then there's also a question about, you know, how how you stand out from the crowd, but avoid faux pas and getting things wrong. Um, As a side point, I was really interested in your, your piece, Kim Elaine from MSL pointing out that some clients are asking for campaigns to go viral, which is probably not a word to be using at the moment. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but uh, but that, that aside, I mean, my take is um, on this, that it's impossible to completely guard against some people taking offence or seeing campaigns as, as being inappropriate. I think the worst thing that anyone can do is feel straitjacketed at the moment. My take is it's, it's just about knowing your target audience, really, trying to see things from their perspective, um, but also take time to stand back and think if what you're doing could be construed as bad taste, even if the motives are good. I mean, lest we forget Burger King's International Women's Day campaign from last month, you know, the one where they ran the message saying women belong in the kitchen. That, that's right. It's a good recent example. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that completely bombed despite the apparently, you know, uh, good intent. I'm no reason to think they, they didn't have good intent from that. Um, there was, but, you know, I think that's the most egregious recent example. So take care, uh, be wary of these things. But don't feel like you're in a straitjacket, I think is the most important thing. Um, and know your audience. I mean, there's no, it's not justifiable to say um, humour, there's no time for humour. Or equally, anything goes and just do what you want. I mean, I, I think it's definitely a case of um, each campaign on its own merits and each, each brand um, on its own audience. But, you know, I think good creatives will be able to um, kind of navigate that tricky path. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Indy from Ketchum was very much, you know, we need humour. We need comedy. Um, you know, it, you can't really go wrong with it um, as long as it's done in, in, in kind of a, a sort of, you know, respectable and, and sensitive way. I thought what Cat Thomas from One Green Bean said was also quite um, quite salient. She, she basically said, you know, you'll, you'll go out there, you'll have a brief, you'll produce some creative, but you're going to have to review this quite frequently and to make sure it aligns with the way that that the mood of the nation changes because it's changing so frequently so it's kind of you know not throwing all your eggs in one basket and 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 being a bit flexible and agile which i think really plays well for for pr campaigns in general it's a very unusual test for uh for creative comms people but you know i do i do think that there's there's a lot of a lot of fun to be had and i mean humor is difficult isn't it because humor is so subjective and Making humour where your number one aim is not to possibly offend anyone is always going to be extremely difficult. I mean, there is always an opportunity that you might just offend someone. But I think I think if you 
step back for long enough, if you take soundings from enough people and, you know, if you really give it give it thought, then I think sometimes you've just got to go with it. I mean, I do think fortune favours the brave. It's going to be really tough, though, isn't it? Getting cut through. I mean, every brand under the sun has kind of been, you know, keeping their powder kegs dry. They all want to go out and sing and dance. How do you get cut through? Well, I think this is the great skill of the creative. It's about um, it's about being original. It's about tapping into the zeitgeist. It's about um, doing something that, that resonates with people. I mean, you look at some of the some of the best campaigns. They're those that make you think. They're those that... Sh- I mean, in, in a way, you talk about comedy. I mean, the, be- the best comedy is comedy that takes something that you've seen a million times and it take- puts a spin on it. It twists it and it makes you think, oh, yeah, I've not seen that before. And I think creativity works in a very similar way. I think a c- comedic brain is quite similar to a creative brain mm-hmm. because you've got to think about a new angle on something that is very often very mundane so you know you think about uh just just off the top of my head the jurassic jeff you know from a few years ago the sort of a reclining jeff goldblum from jurassic park that was placed uh, by the thames you know you think about that that it it would have been so easy because it, it was advertising that jurassic park was being played on um uh, on a tv channel and it was it would have been so easy just to have a big dinosaur there mm-hmm. you know um or just to god forbid float it down the thames um, or to do all of these things that would have probably been fine. But because, you know, they tapped into the fact that there was this meme, um, that it was something that people of a certain type, of a certain age maybe, found really funny. You know, it, it did really well. So it's not like the campaign was the most original thing you'd ever see. I mean, you know, putting something big by the Thames is not in itself original, but it had enough originality to really resonate with people. And I think it's just about finding that hook um, that's going to propel uh, campaigns above the norm yeah and there's been some really like good examples recently i mean the dave tv um you know flat pack pub absolutely brilliant you know it, it kind of it kind of judged what people were thinking what people wanted um it, it saw that there was a, a bit of a gap you know we, we can't get bookings so let's let's take the pub back home there's been a few recent examples where they're sort of looking at the timeline and they're sort of like really nailing it my con- my concern or it's not really concerned but what will be interesting i think will be if brands want to push it a bit too far and if the mood of the nation isn't quite ready for it you know we're still in a pandemic people have lost lives people still don't necessarily feel safe i hate this term the new normal isn't really the same as the old normal I, I just want to. I want to see which brands kind of get that balance right between being bold and, and trying to get out there, um, but not actually pushing it too far and, and being a little bit too like roaring twenties. If, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I, I I know what you mean. I think timing is really important here. I think the mood can change from certainly from week to week, sometimes from day to day. You know, it might be the example of the big outbreak in a couple of London boroughs of the South Africa variant. You know, the mood has probably dropped around here a little bit mm. um, after everyone was on such a high at the start of the week with, with pubs opening. Um, and I'm not saying that is in itself a reason to not do a fun campaign, but you don't know where these things are going to go. You don't know what else is going to happen in the news. In a sense, it's it's a kind of um, accelerated, um, heightened version of what creative comms people have to deal with a lot, which is gauging the mood of the public and adapting campaigns um, accordingly if you need to so this is it and I, I mean my my advice is if you've got an idea that seems right for the moment now do it as quickly as you can don't wait till next week or two weeks because we don't really know what what the mood of the nation is going to be what news might have come up 
Um, I mean, we're hoping that we're not expecting um, any massive reversals in, you know, death rates and hospitalizations. But I think speed is of, of, of the essence at the moment. But I do think there's a big opportunity. And I, I think um, that's that's the sort of the element I would I would focus on. But this is this is an opportunity. And this is where, you know, creative PR comes into its own and proves its worth. So, you know, I think the industry should relish it. Very interesting times ahead. Um, another thing that we're doing at the moment, John, is the top 150. Um, you know, it, it's a very big beast. It, it takes a lot of man hours and, and work. Um, can you give us a bit of a rundown of what's going on, some some sort of insights? Yes. So next week we're going to, as you say, release the top 150, the table, the annual rankings of the biggest PR agencies in the UK uh, by revenue. Um, I mean, it's usually our most read article of the year. Absolute huge amount of interest in it. Um, we're going to be um, drip feeding articles from the top 150 project over the next couple of weeks. I mean, there are about 30 articles. So apologies in advance if anyone um, is not interested in the performance of PR agencies. But we'll be doing lots of other stuff as well, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we're going to start with the main table uh, and the main overview. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll say a few things. Firstly, if I'm honest, we had more submissions than I thought. I know, obviously, it's been a very challenging year in 2020, but it was really good to see that so many agencies were providing their data and being open about it, you know, obviously. And it shows that a lot of them had had a really challenging year. It comes out in the data. So so thank you, everyone, for, for doing that and um, taking part in, in the process. We know it's time consuming. I think it's a really important point, John, because we discussed this before we, we started going through this whole, you know, research process. And we were quite concerned about how many people would actually turn up with, with results. Yes, we were. And you know, thankfully, there has been a lot. I mean, there's been quite a few new agencies as well. I mean, e- each year I, um, you know, I try to make a note of, of new agencies and new agencies get in touch and um, uh, us to fill in the form. I mean, they don't all make the top 150, if I'm honest, most of them probably don't. But it's good to see that they're they're contributing and they're giving comments for the side features as well. So it is it is encouraging. I mean, my, my take on that is I think there is quite a lot of optimism now. And I think in a way, we can look at 2020 as a as a snapshot in time. It doesn't necessarily relate to what's happening in your business right now or in the last quarter. So I think there's this sense of it's better to be there, even if it shows your revenue has declined or stayed flat. It's better to be there to show that you're there in the market, that you're um, you're part of this great industry um, and, you know, you, you want to get involved. So I think that is probably some of the mentality that actually when we sent out the form, people were probably, if not overly optimistic, they were probably not as pessimistic as they were. So this was in January when we sent it out. So that is my that is my assumption. It's been a very pleasant surprise. And um, yeah, it's been a much more complete top 150 than, than we probably expected. Um, and, and please stay tuned for results because they are fascinating. Absolutely. Great. Well, I'm going to bid farewell to John. Thanks for joining us, mate. Um, we'll see you next week. Um, Francis and Louise are now waiting in the green room. The way David Cameron used his contacts with ministers on behalf of the businessman who employed him, Lex Greensill, sparked a row about lobbying that's dominated Westminster for days. Yesterday, Conservative MPs voted against setting up a special parliamentary investigation. So the nose have it, the nose have it. It's the next big scandal waiting to happen. A former Prime Minister under fire. After weeks of silence, David Cameron, who himself in 2010 warned about lobbying, has admitted he shouldn't have emailed or texted Cabinet Ministers on behalf of Greensill Capital. 
Does the Minister now agree that Dave was, and indeed remains, dodgy? A few texts from Dodgy Dave and Greensill's got ten meetings and a ream of correspondence with senior Treasury officials. The biggest communication story of the past few weeks has been David Cameron's efforts to carry favour with Chancellor Rishi Sunak, Health Secretary Matt Hancock and others on behalf of the collapsed financial services firm Greensill Capital. Cameron's long-awaited response has done little to restore trust in a system that many see as opaque at best. The lobbying scandal has raised issues around transparency and accountability. Joining us today is the head of the communications and lobbying body, the PRCA, Francis Ingham and Louise Stewart, a strategic counsel at one of the UK's largest lobbying firms, Cicero AMO. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Robin. To begin with, let's take a step back. Francis, can you provide some context about the Lobbying Act? Why it was introduced and by whom, who it covers and how it relates to David Cameron's lobbying on behalf of Greensill? Sure. So we've had the Lobbying Act for uh, close on a decade now. And it was ironically, given what we're talking about, introduced by uh, Mr Cameron's government. Um, It's really narrow in scope um, so it requires third-party consultant lobbyists to register um, with ORCL, the, uh, uh, the organisation run by the government. Um, mm-hmm. But they only have to register their clients on whose behalf they have contacted directly ministers or permanent secretaries, and they do that every quarter. Now, because it's only third-party lobbyists, it excludes the whole of the in-house lobbying community. And because it's a really narrow definition of what counts as contact, it excludes the majority of lobbying that even the people on it do. So if you look at the PRCA Public Affairs Register, for example, completed every quarter, um, everyone's clients are declared, all of their staff are declared. It's far broader than the government register. And that's the problem with it. It captures hardly anybody, and it didn't capture Mr Cameron. In fact, um, you're not legally allowed to register if you work in-house. You're prohibited from doing so. So it needs to be amended, needs to be broadened, and it needs to be deepened in order to uh, maintain confidence in the process. Okay. So if we look at the current Lobbying Act, in your estimates or, or whatever whatever estimates have been done, how much of lobbying activity does it actually cover? I mean, I, I would say at most a quarter, um, probably less. And the real irony of this is that the lobbying industry wants it to be broadened and deepened. It actually wants the government to impose more regulation upon it. That's the irony. The government could do it easily by pushing at an open door, and it, it really should push at that open door right now. But why is why would the government not want to do that? I mean, can you can you sort of give us a bit of a bit of a rundown in, in terms of the politics at play? I mean, I'd love to hear Louise's view on this, but I mean, my view is very straightforwardly. Um, they they said in their manifesto some elections back they were going to do say a lobbying act. They had lots of conversations in coalition with the Lib Dems about what ought to be in that act. It was problematic for them to come to a settled view. Uh, They came to that view and it's sort of a a tick in the box and and move on. 
but I, you know, there is a clear uh, desire from the lobbying industry for it to be extended. You've got the opposition calling for it to be extended. In their private conversations, uh, Tory MPs would be perfectly happy for it to be extended. So the government needs to sort of get on and extend it. I mean, is this a partisan issue or, or, or are both sides of politics kind of wary of, of extending it? Both sides have been wary of it extending it to be honest because you know it does suit it does suit them i mean in terms of labor they are lobbied and and have very close links with some of the largest unions in the uk and they realized that extending it would would put those links at risk so um i think it has suited government to work as it is at the moment and opposition um, parties. But I, I, I think, you know, we are in complete agreement with what Francis is saying, that there does need to be um, an overhaul of this. And lobbyists, in fact, are the ones who are calling for greater transparency, because at the moment, you know, as Francis said, probably only about 25 percent of them are, are caught on this lobbying register and the rest of them are doing it sort of behind the scenes if you like in the way that has been revealed by the, by this latest scandal. Louise I wanted to just ask you you used to be the communications director for the Federation of Small Businesses um, what is the sort of mindset um, in these sorts of organisations when it comes to transparency and lobbying? Well there was always um, great desire to be transparent I mean in the um, some of the newspapers today have picked up on the fact that actually Greensill uh, Lex um, had been in in contact with Federation of Small Businesses because he was dealing with small business loans and decided not to have anything to do with with him, um, which is a a good uh, decision with hindsight. Um, But you are you are lobbied all the time as a trade association by people who want you to speak to government on their behalf and you speak to government. But lobbying isn't all negative, it has to be said. I mean, it, it gets a bad press, but people lobby all the time. And whether that is individuals or trade unions or um, charities, um, when I was at the FSB, one of our biggest successes was lobbying for a small business commissioner, um, which we achieved. It was lobbying on late payments. Now, late payments put 50,000 small businesses a year out of business. Um, most people would say that was effective lobbying and it was for the common good. So there's a lot of lobbying that is actually very positive. But what this mm. Does is is sort of highlight some of the very negative kind of lobbying that we see that goes on behind the scenes. And jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
think it really undermines trust. It tr undermines trust in government. It appears all too easy for ministers and top civil servants to, to use their insider knowledge, if you like, of Westminster to perhaps enrich themselves when they leave government. And people don't like that. It leaves a very bitter taste. And you also look at the moment of some of the situations we're in. We've seen huge contracts go to um, you know, people providing PPE that have been called into question, and you know, um, testing um, uh, contracts, etc. And you sort of think, well, have these all been above board, or have they been um, because somebody knows somebody and and has the right in in government? So I think what this does is really serves to undermine public trust, really, in government. Okay, uh, I wanted to ask you, Louise, as well, because you used to be a political reporter for many years um, with the BBC and, and and others. How big of of a deal is this particular scandal with David Cameron? I mean, I mean, uh, over the years, how how would you sort of contextualise it? I think it's huge. Um, I have to say, as Francis said at the beginning, it's ironic, but actually um, the lobbying laws were brought in under David Cameron's government. He warned back in 2010 there was a far too cosy relationship between politics and money. I was reporting at Westminster at that time for the BBC. He warned that lobbying would be the next big scandal to happen. Well, of course, it wasn't. Expenses was the next big scandal to happen, wasn't it, for, for MPs? Um, but Clearly, you know, this has been brewing for a while. I think what's so damaging is the fact it has gone on for so long. It took mm -hmm. David Cameron over a month after this was first broken in the newspapers, etc., to put out any kind of statement. If I was being cynical, I would say he put out the statement on the Sunday after Prince Philip died when all the news focus was elsewhere. Um, perhaps he thought it might slip under the radar a bit more than it has. Um, Prime Minister's questions, listening to it this week, that was the only line of attack, really, uh, from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer said, you know, it, it's a Tory sleaze again. Um, so it's a really negative optics around this. And I can't think of any uh, previous uh, Prime Minister who's come under investigation in this way. I mean, there is going to be a formal investigation led by uh, Nigel Boardman, the, the lawyer, um, which is going to have to report around June, we think. Um, That's right. Of, of a, you know, former Prime Minister. It's it's really, I don't think I can sort of overstate, it is a huge um, scandal. And I think also what's very damaging is where the tentacles are, because we keep hearing about other people that were involved. So David Cameron was, I mean, he seemed to be almost stalking Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. He was constantly texting him and calling mm. him. He was um, in touch with um, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and they went for a drink, um, etc. And all of these things just feel like, you know, the tentacles are everywhere. And then we find out some civil servants were involved and were working for Greensill. And, uh, you know, part of David Cameron's statement, which I thought was slightly unedifying, was he sort of blamed Sir Jeremy Haywood for bringing Lex Greensill into government. Um, perhaps, I think, in a, a, an attempt to refute claims that he'd brought him in he had the role of bringing him but you know Sir Jeremy Haywood um you know is not around to defend his reputation which was mm -hmm. you know without blemish I think but but it does show these tentacles um across government across the civil service and going back for several years. Francis in terms of this particular lobbying scandal how do you rate it compared to other ones in the past and what was your response or reaction to David Cameron's statement over the weekend? 
I, I agree with Louise. <laughs> um, I think it is, first of all, it is really, really big. Secondly, it is absolutely astonishing that civil servants had part-time lobbying roles. I, I mean, that's just aston- really r- remarkable. Uh, as Louise says, to have a former prime minister being investigated in this manner it is sadly unique or happily unique, whichever way you you look at it. Um, and I think it isn't a, a Westminster SW1 issue. I think it has cut through. Um, I moved house recently. I've um, got the carpet guys round today. Uh, the carpet guy uh, said, I heard you on Sky this morning about the camera and lobbying stuff. And, you know, so it's not just of interest to lobbyists, journalists and politicians. Um, normal people are interested in it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've put forward some proposals for what we, we think ought to happen. It's partly about um, uh, changing the act, broadening it and deepening it. It's about saying that ministers shouldn't be allowed to have lobbying jobs for five years. Uh, I think that would restore a fair deal of confidence in the system that they ministers ought to publish their diaries of who they're meeting with. They're supposed to, uh, they frequently don't, or it's incredibly late uh, when they do. We're saying that uh, too many parliamentary passes are handed out to people who don't work in parliament. If you go on the register of who holds a pass, you have plenty of, frankly, lobbyists who are on there, who've been given passes by MPs and members of the House of Lords, and we're going to be uh, revealing our research into that um, imminently. And finally, you've got the um, Oracle. You can declare your own code. I mean, the, there's one agency on Oracle um, where they say, where the link to their own code says, I paraphrase, if you make a complaint that we will investigate, um, you've got to uh, keep it completely confidential. And if we decide your complaint isn't valid, we'll send you the bill. Now, that's awful. Um, you can't mark your own homework. And the, the annoying thing about all of this is, as Louise said, in our view, the vast majority of lobbying and lobbyists, it's ethical and professional, embraces transparency. And this sort of story, when you have former politicians on the make, frankly, uh, it, it drags our industry uh, down because of their low standards, not because of ours. And that's why we would urge the government to take action and to reopening, reopen the Lobbying Act and to make ministers um, do what they ought to do and adhere to the same standards that our industry does. Do either of you hold any hopes for this government inquiry? Do, do you think they're all, it will uncover anything? It will have any teeth? Um, what, what are your, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think um, if people are banking on this inquiry, clearing up what's what's happened here, they, they're likely to be disappointed. Mm. It's got a very narrow remit from what we've seen. It, it wants to look into what happened with Mr Cameron and Mr Greensill, but we know it's, it's much wider than that. Um, it's not looking at the wider issue of lobbying. Um, it's not setting out to propose a new system. Um, so I don't have hugely high hopes um, on that. And um, I think, you know, we would all benefit from that greater transparency. Um, I do think it will make uncomfortable reading uh, and not just for David Cameron. I think what it will 
uh, unravel is how far the tentacles of lobbying have gone within government, as we've been touching on, within the civil service, within, um, you know, senior government ministers, etc., um, having these links. So unless it um, were to have an overhaul of lobbying, I don't think it's going to change public attitudes. And as Francis said, I very much agree that this has cut through and it might be fine for people to sort of, you know, Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's questions, trying to bat away the questions and, um, to return to talking about police numbers and things that he thinks are, are more relevant. But actually, this is in every newspaper. It, it, it's online. It's on every news bulletin. It's on every TV news bulletin. And there's a reason for that, you know, because it, it is a scandal that we've not seen the likes of for a very long time. But, you know, the PRB is, is obviously unveiled a six-point plan. But politically, how do you actually make this happen um as as you, you guys discussed previously you know this is not a partisan issue um both labor and, and the conservatives have vested interests in keeping the status quo so so what needs to be done to actually enact meaningful change i mean that that's a <laughs> that's a really difficult question probably needs a very good lobbying company to get it sorted um i mean the the reality of this is that it will require political will. Um, You know, it is entirely within the gift of the government to make this happen. Um, The the fact that the inquiry is narrow in scope isn't necessarily a problem because we don't need an inquiry into the broader regulation of lobbying. That isn't necessary at all. All we need is a bill from the government um, that would have a majority of support um, in Parliament. Um, so I, I, I would presume it depends how long this goes on for. And as Louise said, I, I think we're now on day 42 or something, thanks to Cameron's very slow response. It's been the front page of the Times three days in a row. You've had all of these cartoons and the ones yesterday and the day before, and it's just going on and on and on. And I believe it's cutting through. And it's that sort of when you get to that level, then maybe somebody in Downing Street will be a special advisor, I presume, will say, you know what, boss, um, we've got to launch this boil. OK, I wanted to also touch on um, the other big news of the week. Um, I will be bigger news. Uh, Prince Philip's passing. Uh, I know, Louise, you don't have any sort of um, recollections of, of meeting Prince Philip or, or in your professional life. Francis, have you got any stories you can share? Um, one, um, I was at a reception where uh, Prince Philip was the guest of honour, a local civic society thing. Uh, there was a table of the local Alzheimer's society and he wandered over and said, I'm surprised you remember to come. <laughs> uh, and actually they all laughed and uh, it did put them at, <laughs> at their ease and the local uh, the local newspaper loved it obviously there's been a lot, a lot of like stories on social media and, and, and elsewhere about his sharp wit uh, yeah and I mean it was definitely in, on display that day and um, uh, you know people could have been insulted by it it's not the most polite of things to say but actually they all laughed and I do believe personally it was his way of pe- putting people at their ease in uh, what for them is probably a very tense um, encounter otherwise. From a public perception perspective, um, what do you think will be his legacy? I mean, what has he done for the royal family brand over many years? 
he's the longest serving royal consort um, ever, 73 years. It's just a remarkable achievement, really. And, uh, you know, that anecdote from Francis just shows what, what we, we all sort of know. He clearly didn't suffer fools. Um, he could be quite brusque in manner at times. I was speaking to someone earlier who said they, a politician who said they met him at an event and um, they they thought he had on the um, tie of the event he was at, you know, and um, he said, no, this is an Edinburgh University tie, don't you recognise it? And, you know, it was quite sort of put out that they hadn't clocked that. Um, I think his his bigger legacy will be um, the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, which has benefited millions mm-hmm. of young people, uh, not just in the UK, but beyond. Uh, his work in conservation, which in many ways he was ahead of his yep. time. And I think the impact on on the younger royals, I mean, you know, we no one can forget the pictures of him walking with William and, and Harry uh, behind Diana's coffin. And, you know, this week they'll mm. have to be walking behind his and come full circle. So, you know, he does leave a legacy. He wasn't, you know, he was of a generation, which I don't think you would get away with the kind of comments that he, he was making at that time as well, Francis has relayed one there. That, but there were some of the Yeah, that, that's right. Not. I mean, he was very much of my grandfather's um, generation. My, my grandfather recently passed away. He was, he was um, you know, 94. He also served in World War, World War II. And, you know, very, very similar in terms of that, that sort of like sharp wit, but you know, not 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 too politically correct. Francis, what do you think um, will be Prince Philip's legacy? You, you know, PR Week has said for quite a while now, and so have we, about uh, about the uh, the need for authenticity, and uh, people want to see uh, real. Uh, well, the people want to see real values, and that you're true to you say what you believe. Um, well, you, he was certainly authentic, yeah. wasn't he? Um, that's undeniable in my view. And uh, I mean, I personally thought he was a, a great bloke um, and doing a, a probably a terribly tedious job for most of the time. Um, but the authenticity thing is the is the contemporary bit I'd relay it back to. Look, there's been a lot of debate about the BBC's coverage, um, you know, being overkill. Uh, I'm really interested, Louise, because you have a bit of an inside running on how these things work. You worked for the BBC for many, many years. Can you please... Yeah give us a bit of an insight into how it works when these massive rural news events happen. Well, I, I took part in several rehearsals for um, a royal death while I was at BBC. Um, and, uh, you know, they all had code names, operations and such. And um, these things are obviously planned in a way I mean with Prince Philip it would be very different from I mean I remember I was a, a BBC News trainee with the BBC when Princess Diana died mm. and, uh, the shock of that and everyone sort of pouring into the newsrooms etc you know um, to sort of all hands to the pump if you like um, this is very different I mean clearly he'd been very ill he'd been in hospital for a month so they will have had a lot of um, their coverage lined up, their obits, you know, ready to go. Um, I think initially they covered it very well. I was in the car about to go somewhere and I had uh, Radio 4 on, I think it was you and yours. And then I heard uh, Evan Davis um, cut in and say, we are interrupting this broadcast to bring you the news. And as he said it, I knew it could only be one story. And I thought that that's Prince Philip's death. And it was. 
So I think on the day, the BBC do very well. They galvanise, they, they um, you know, brought the news to people very well. I think, uh, you know, has there been overkill? I think there has. I have to say, by Sunday morning, when the Mar programme was still all about it, and I thought, if I hear one more time about, you know, how this man was born on a kitchen table in Greece, you know, (laughs) the same anecdotes again and again and again, the same guests wheeled out. And I think if if you're not um, a great fan or a royalist, I mean, you know, I admired him. I think um, my father's military, the military loved him. You know, they, they... really admired him but if you're not of that um sort of ilk I think you probably will find it very frustrating that you had no choice every station was the same Mm. a friend of mine commented who you know works for the BBC and said she'd got out of the shower and had radio one on and suddenly you know it turned into Evan Davis was uh, on there and and then wall-to-wall um sort of commentary and I think it's still going on and I, I had a thought to myself last night which is perhaps slightly uncharitable but I thought my goodness if the Queen can get back to work because we know she held a retirement for one of the most senior civil servants who'd worked with her yesterday and, and I think if she can get back to work and she's lost her husband Husband, can we just please move on a bit? Francis, what, what, what's your view on this? Um, my, my personal view is that he was the husband of the head of state. Um, it's inevitable and probably appropriate that all of this coverage has been devoted to it. Um, and any broadcaster is, is going to find it very difficult to find the right balance uh, and, the, you know, if, if they hadn't gone into let's only talk about the Duke mode, there would have been a load of complaints uh, about them showing undue respect uh, mm. in place of the complaints uh, that were that were registered. But, I mean, I, I remember when Diana died, um, it was wall-to-wall coverage again. Um, it's just what happens when somebody incredibly famous, particularly somebody in the royal family, um, happens, uh, dies, isn't it? I mean, and also we've had a year of coverage that really hasn't changed. It's all been about one topic, uh, about COVID. So mm. we could part up with a year of that. I'm, I'm, I imagine we can part up with a little bit about the uh, death of the Queen's husband. I, I don't disagree, Francis, in that I think, you know, as I said on day one, I think the tone was right. I think that there now has to be a choice, though, and if people turn on BBC Two and want to see, um, you know, Gardener's World or whatever it is, then they should have that choice. Um, you know, the BBC says it's not a state broadcaster, but clearly it, it does look like it on an occasion like this. Well, I mean, the, the, the BBC is a, a PRC member, so I, I state that up, up front. I mean, it, it clearly is a state broadcaster. Um, not in the mode of Russia today that was on a few minutes ago, uh, clearly is a state broadcaster and has different expectations um, on it, I guess. I'd also say this, though. Um, we're probably of the age where we actually turn on the TV and look for something to, to watch. Uh, my children never turn on the TV. They consume all of their media uh, via their phones and none of it's TV programming. Yeah, I completely agree with the point, you know, I do feel slightly all these people who've taken the time to complain. This is where I, I just find the argument really, really strange. It's like, you know, we live in an age where there are so many different 
entertainment TV um, options. You, you know, you have Netflix, you have Amazon Prime, you have the linear channels. Why are people getting so hung up on one specific channel, devoting so much I coverage think- to it? To, you know, they enjoy complaining. Uh, I had many, many complaints in my time at the BBC, and they were mostly really bizarre. I uh, someone complained. Uh, this is the my my favourite one ever. I was interviewing all the party leaders, um, and it was when sort of UKIP were on the rise, and I was interviewing um, uh, Nigel Farage, and somebody complained that my dress was too short, and I was trying to seduce him. I'm afraid I'm going to have to press the power button on our podcast um, control um, because we're out of time. But thank you so much, Francis and Louise, for joining us today. Really interesting discussion. I'd also like to thank my weekly sparring partner, John Harrington, and our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. If you enjoy this podcast, please do visit prweek.com forward slash UK to stay up to date with all of our news and analysis. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the PR Weekly. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, goodbye.